And we have a lot to cover this morning. We come to the largest, the longest chapter in all of Genesis, 67 verses before us. And so we want to give ourselves time to deal with everything that we find here. So I'm just going to jump right into this thing this morning. And right off the bat, I'm going to tell you what I believe is the overarching truth that we're going to find here in Genesis 24. And that is this. Those who rest in the steadfast love of God will be led by his providential hand. I'll say that one more time. Those who rest in the steadfast love of God will be led by his providential hand. In light of this overarching truth, as we walk through this story this morning that we find here in Genesis chapter 24, I want you to pay careful attention to two particular things. First, I want you to pay attention to God's providential care over this story. Nowhere in this story do we see a word from the Lord. We also don't really see anything directly attributed to the Lord's work, but The Lord, God, is most certainly the main character of the story as the characters interact with each other and and there's movement and there's dialogue between them. We see God providing for and caring for their needs in the background to bring about his will and his work in this particular situation. So I want you to notice first the providential care of God over the story, but then secondly, I want you to notice the faithfulness of the characters. In particular, I want you to notice the faithfulness of Abraham's servant as he sets out on this journey, on this task that his master, Abraham, has given him. And so we're going to begin there in verse 1, if you'll follow along with me. It says, now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps a woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife. For my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. As the people of God, we are to be faithful, knowing that God will bring about the results that he desires. He will accomplish his purposes. He will bring about his will. We come here to the end of Abraham's life, and some commentators believe by the time we get to the end of chapter 24, Abraham is already dead. And the writer tells us here something that he has not said once in the story of Abraham, which might 
come as a surprise to you, but here he says these words in verse 1, the Lord had blessed Abraham. Now we have seen the Lord clearly blessing Abraham throughout the story, but it's only here at the end of his life that the writer says the Lord blessed him. So we go back to the very beginning of the story of Abraham where God promised to do what? Bless Abraham. And at the end of his days, the writer tells us here that the Lord has done that. But there's a conflict that arises that has the future in view. Much like last week at the death of his wife Sarah, Abraham has to think about what is in store for the future of the promise. And here in particular... When he asks this question again, what will come of the promise at my death? He has one specific question he needs to answer. Who will marry Isaac? He's come to the end of his days. He has the son of promise, but he has yet to marry someone. So he goes to his servant who has charge over all of his household, and he has this one request of him. Go and find my son Isaac, a wife. Now, just a brief note on the servant Uh, As you probably notice in the first nine verses, and you'll see throughout the story, this servant remains nameless. Some commentators believe that it's potentially Eleazar from earlier in the story where Abraham asked God, who will be the heir of my household? Will it be Eleazar? But the writer, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does not tell us who the servant is because it's not so much about who the servant is as what the servant does in the story. And Abraham, in his request, has two clear things that he wants to be accomplished. First, he does not want his son to marry a woman from the Canaanites. Remember, Abraham has traveled from his father's household to this land that God has promised him, the land of Canaan, and he does not want his son to marry a foreign woman from within the land. So the second part of his request is that his servant go back to his country, to his kindred, among his nation, among his tribe, and find a wife for his son Isaac. Now we need to pause here for just a moment and address something here that's really important. Uh, This part of the story where Abraham makes this request for his son to marry someone from his own nation would have been very instructional for the original audience. This has practical implications on the nation of Israel as they read this story because God in his law clearly commands that the people of Israel do not marry women or men from foreign nations. They are to marry from within the nation of Israel. And so the nation of Israel, who has God's law, who has this command, looking back then at Father Abraham, who is seeking to to do this without having the, the law of God, would be very instructional to them. It would have affirmed to them that God's law was good and right for them to marry within the nation of Israel. And so we get to... Um, Later in the story of Israel in 1 Kings 11, where Solomon is the king of Israel, Israel has reached its climax. And what do we find out about Solomon? He had married many foreign wives. And you could argue this is the beginning of the, the, the downward spiral of the nation of Israel because of the disobedience of Solomon to not obey the law of God. Later in the New Testament, Paul affirms this, and he, he talks about how we as believers are not to be unequally yoked. And so I would do a disservice to you this morning to not touch on this for just a moment. Young people who are looking to find a marriage partner in the coming years, know this. God's word is clear and helpful to you in that endeavor that you should look first and foremost for someone to marry who is a follower of Jesus Christ. 
Now, I'm not just talking about someone who calls themselves a Christian and went to church when they were a child. Find someone who is pursuing hard after Jesus. And if the person that you are dating or courting and looking to marry is not that person, do not pursue a relationship with them. God's word is clear on this, and Abraham sets an example for all of us in this desire that he has before God even gave them this particular law. But we pick up the story, and the servant here has a particular concern. He says, what if the woman doesn't want to come back with me? Do I need to take Isaac with me to the land of your fathers? And Abraham makes it clear that he does not want Isaac to return to his homeland. You see there in verse 6, Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. I think it's quite clear from the text that Abraham has a promised land perspective. He's resting in the covenant promise of God, and he does not want to do anything that would threaten that. And so again, we saw that last week where he buries his wife Sarah in the land of promise, not in her homeland. And here, he does not want Isaac to go back per a threat of him never returning to the promised land. And we see this perspective in verse 7. Look what Abraham says to the servant. He says, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. Abraham has in view this covenant promise that God has made to him. And as we touched on last week, there is no going back for Abraham. The Lord has brought him to this place and he will remain steadfast. So then in verse 7, Abraham assures the servant that God will go before him. Look at the latter part of verse 7 there. He says there, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Here again, we see the angel of the Lord, as we've seen several times already in the story of Genesis. And we've said that this is most likely the pre-incarnate Christ. And Abraham has had interactions with the, the, the angel of the Lord already. And so he says to his servant, the Lord Christ himself will go before you. He will prepare the way. And notice the certainty in this statement at the end of verse 7. You shall take a wife for my son from there. But then notice what he says immediately after that in verse 8. He says, But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. And so he says, If she doesn't return with you, you are free from this oath that you are about to make with me. Just don't take Isaac back to the land of my fathers. And so the servant swears the oath. He puts his hand under Abraham's thigh. And we see here in this moment of faithfulness from Abraham that the success or failure of the mission was not left up to his servant, but rather it was resting in the providence of God. The Lord will bring you success in your journey, but if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. He is resting in the providential care of God. We see something similar to this in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. You know the story. Nebuchadnezzar builds the golden idol, and, and when the, the sound of the instruments play, everyone is to bow down and worship the idol. And these three Hebrew God-fearers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, will not bow down and worship this idol that Nebuchadnezzar has made. And so the penalty is what? That they are to be thrown into this fiery furnace. And... 
Nebuchadnezzar gives them a chance to recant and, and bow down and worship. And they say, we will not. We will only worship the Lord our God. And we believe this one thing, Nebuchadnezzar, that he will deliver us from the fiery furnace. But then listen what they say there in the book of Daniel after that. They say this, but if not, we will not serve your gods. They will be faithful, trusting that the Lord will have his way. Whether it is deliverance from the furnace or death in the furnace. This servant goes forth knowing that the Lord will go before him. And whether he comes back with a wife for Isaac or not, God's will be done. He will be faithful. We see this in Abraham. We see this in the servant. We see this in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Faithfulness that trusts God's will will be done. And this is how we are to operate in the Christian life. We are to operate in faithfulness to our master. This is really true of every area of the Christian life. You think about evangelism in particular. We are simply called to be faithful heralds of the gospel. We do not save. We do not change people's hearts and minds. Only the Spirit of God can do that. So we faithfully preach Christ to a lost and dying world knowing that what? God is the one who brings about salvation. This is true for Christ Church for Calvary Hills Baptist Church, that we are not to be caught up in pragmatism and methodologies that get us to an end goal of more numbers and bigger buildings and bigger budgets. We are simply called to be faithful to who Christ has called us to be as his church according to his word. And trust that he will bring the results that he desires for this church. I want to encourage you to make plans now to come back next Sunday night at 6.30 as we meet in this place. And we're going to talk about what are the marks of a healthy, faithful New Testament church according to Scripture. What are we to be about as a New Testament church? You hear me say this all the time. We don't have to guess. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to read the latest, greatest church planning book to figure it out. God's word is clear. May we be found faithful, come what may. The barometer by which we measure success in the Christian life is faithfulness. And the reason we know this to be true is because success in this life only comes by the providential hand of God. We pick up our story there in verse 10. It says, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. Verse 11, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. I apologize. Verse 12, and he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to your master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. 
The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from, my, from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please let... Uh, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. Then the man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. The servant swears this oath to Abraham, and it says there that he took ten of Abraham's camels. Remember, at the beginning, the writer tells us the Lord had blessed Abraham. And throughout this story, we see evidence of that. And camels is one of those evidences. Camels were not a common form of transportation in this day. And for Abraham to have ten camels for his servant to go on this journey and speaks to the way that the Lord has blessed him. And so this servant takes with him these gifts that we come to find out were meant for the woman. And so he goes ready and prepared that the Lord will provide for him. And he has these gifts ready to give to this woman. And he finds himself in Nahor's city in Mesopotamia. Why is this significant? Well, Nahor is Abraham's brother. Look back with me at Genesis chapter 22, verses 20 through 24. Uh, We haven't really touched on these verses, and I'm a little disappointed that none of you came to me and pointed that out to me, but I forgive you. We were going to touch on it last week, but I wanted to save it for this week because these few verses have implications on what we're about to read. The writer here in chapter 22, after the the incident with Isaac and the sacrifice, begins to prepare us for what we're about to see. Look what he says in Genesis 22, verse 20. It says, Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reuma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Maaka. And so as the reader... We know full well what is happening here. He has come to the the, the city where Abraham's family reside. And we know that Rebekah is a a, a family member of Abraham. But for the servant, he, he doesn't yet know these things. So we have this unique perspective of the reader looking on this as these things unfold. And so he rests his camels there outside the city well. And he prays a prayer to God that you find there in verses 12 through 14. So he comes to the well, and it happens to be the time of day when the women come out to the well to to get water. And see, he says, Lord, I've come here at this time of day. And then he has a very specific request that we see in verse 14. 
He says, let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to your master. Again, a very specific request. He says to the Lord, by answering my prayer, I will know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. By asking to show steadfast love to Abraham, he is saying to the Lord, give me success, Lord, as an outworking of your faithfulness. So don't miss this. this is, he's not giving God an ultimatum here. He's not saying, Lord, if you don't answer this particular prayer, you prove that you are unfaithful. Rather, he's saying, Lord, I'm resting in the fact that you are faithful. Show that to me by granting me success. Look at verse 12 there. That's the heart of his prayer. Oh, Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. So we shouldn't get lost in the specifics and the uniqueness of his request there in verse 14. He is simply praying here that God would open a door that he cannot open himself as the servant. You have to understand this is an overwhelming task for this man. He's traveled over 400 miles on camelback. He has no GPS. There was no looking on Facebook before he left to see what Nahor's face looked like. He's flying completely blind with this incredible mission that his master Abraham has given him and entrusted him with. He's going into it and he comes to the moment where he says, Lord, I cannot do this in and of myself. Please grant me success. And so I I would not encourage you to pray or live your life in this way that he presents in this specific prayer. Please. Do not pray, Lord, may the next lady who serves me sweet tea, may she be the one whom I marry. That's not how we live our lives. What he is saying here is any success that comes to me will only come by God's providential hand. Every time we pray, we are acknowledging this one thing, that God is in control and we are not. That's what his prayer is about. And so what happens before he finishes his prayer, Rebecca, Abraham's relative, arrives on the scene and she's this attractive maiden. She comes to the well, the servant goes to her and he asks her for a drink and she says basically the very thing that he asked the Lord for her to say. Now there's some differences there and we won't go into that because of time, but notice what, he, what happens at the end of uh, there in verse 21. She does all the things that he asked the Lord for her to do. God does this miraculous, divine intervention. And look what it says in verse 21. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. At this point, he doesn't know one crucial detail to the story. He was sent out to find what? A woman from Abraham's family. And even though he had this miraculous experience, this divine encounter, he's not resting in the emotion or the experience. He's resting in what is true, determining what God's direction is. And so he asks her, whose daughter are you? And when he comes to realize that she is from Abraham's household, then what does he do? Verse 26, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. And said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. 
As for me, the Lord has led me to the way of the house of my master's kinsmen. He says, God has shown me faithfulness and answered my prayer. And so Rebecca runs home to tell her family, and we see two really crucial things here in the life of the servant. First, he's obeying his master, but most importantly, he's trusting in the Lord to deliver him and provide for him what he needs. When we think about the will of God, there's two primary ways that we identify the will of God. We have the secret hidden will of God, but we have his, also his revealed will, the, the will of God that is clear that we have in his word, the commands of the Bible. We're going to talk about his revealed will here in a moment, but first I want us to think about the secret will of God. The direction that God has for your life, or maybe God's plan for your life. When you come to a crossroads in, in life, and, and there's two decisions before you. Where do I go to college? Who do I marry? What career should I choose? When should I retire? The truth about the secret will of God, the hidden will of God, is we cannot know God's secret will. We cannot know the sovereign will of God. And even when we come to points in our life where we can look back and see more clearly how God was working in the midst of our life through circumstances and other things, we can never fully understand the why of the will of God. We can know the who behind the will of God. We can rest in him, but we will never fully understand the hidden will of God. So what do we do when we come to a fork in the road? Do we give God an ultimatum, uh, an ultimatum and say, Lord, unless you write a sign on the wall, I'm not going to know where to go to college. No, what should we do? Well, we see some helpful things here in the text that help us. First, in every decision in life, we should bathe it in prayer. Not to get some special revelation or special answer. A sign from heaven, a, a vision in the night. No, we pray simply trusting in the Lord. Saying, Lord, let your will be done and then we trust that the Holy Spirit that indwells us as believers will sanctify our thoughts our desires our affections our attitudes and God will lead us and guide us as the Holy Spirit sanctifies us to the places and people that he wants us to go to so a good question for us to ask when we're trying to discern what is God's plan and direction for my life in this particular season of life is what is clear and what is true? Don't base the decisions that you make in this life on an experience or an emotion or something fanciful that happened to you. Rest in what is clear and true. Use your minds that God gave you and the logic that he gave you to make a wise decision. Seek wise counsel in these decisions. But then finally, when God opens a door and you find yourself in a particular position in life, what is our final response? It's to do what the servant did. Praise God for his provision. But here's what's so important. When God makes his plan known to us, we should always respond in obedience to him. We pick up the story there in verse 29, and this is the largest portion we're going to read, so stay with me here. Verse 29, it says, Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house 
and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have, I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son, from my clan, and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar and on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms, and I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servants heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. As God continues to open doors in this story, the servant remains faithful. There are still several obstacles to his mission that we come to see that he faces. First is getting the permission of Laban and the father. Laban comes out and his response to the servant appears to be based on what his sister told him. 
Uh, There's some commentators that see Laban as kind of a scoundrel and that he's there just to get money. Uh, But I think we see here that he hears from his sister that there was this divine appointment. And so he goes out to this man. He invites him into his home, calls him blessed of Yahweh, and provides him with food. But the servant will not eat until he has a chance to tell his story. And in verses 34 through 49, he recounts everything that has happened. Now, at this point, some of you are probably saying to yourself two things. Why did the writer retell all of that? We already heard that. We don't need the details again. And some of you are also probably thinking, why is the pastor rereading all of this? This is all the inspired word of God. Every word, every phrase, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we are retold the story. Why? To emphasize God's providential hand over the story. And so in verses 35 and 36, we get a summary of who Abraham is. And I love these two verses in all of Genesis because it sums up how God has indeed blessed Abraham. The Lord has greatly blessed my master. And he lists out all those things that we've seen God blessing Abraham with throughout the story. And notice again, the camels. Verse 36, he says there that his wife Sarah bore a son in her old age. He's giving testimony to God's faithfulness over Abraham. And then in verses 37 through 41, we get a summary of his interaction with Abraham before the story began. Just a quick note, most all of it is the same, but one of the things that's added there in verse 40 is that he says that Abraham said that the angel will prosper your way. We, we see here an affirmation from the servant that this has been a divine intervention from God. And then in verses 42 through 49, we get a summary of the events at the well, which are summed up in verse 48 where he says this, God of my master Abraham who had led me by the right way. To take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Interestingly, interestingly here, the theme of steadfast love of God here is then turned against Laban and the father of Rebekah. And so he asks, one commentator says this, essentially, will you do as God has done? Or even more, more strongly there, will you go against God? God has clearly worked, people. What are you going to do? He has intervened. How will you respond? Will you go against him? And so again, we see this servant of Abraham resting in God's provision and direction, even after this miraculous counter, encounter that happened earlier in the story at the well. So he's resting in this. If the Lord closes the door and the Father says no, God's will be done. But that's not the only obstacle that we come to see here. It's then given over to Rebecca to save for herself because the mother and the brother seem to have second thoughts after they've spent the night there with the family. And they say, hey, why don't you let her stay a little while longer? What does the servant say in verse 56? He says, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master." The Lord has made his will known, and the master is eager to obey the Lord. So they turn to Rebecca, and they say to her, what say you? And what does she say at the end of verse 58? Three simple words, I will go. We see here everyone in the story giving witness to this divine encounter. We see here Rebecca trusting in Yahweh. As I mentioned earlier, nowhere in this text do we see a word from the Lord or direct intervention from the Lord, but the Lord is clearly at work in the midst of this story to bring about his will. 
And so after they blessed Rebekah, they send her on her way, riding on what? Abraham's camels. And so we see all of these setbacks that could have ended the endeavor, but it was the Lord that prospered the servant's way. Three times he acknowledges that in the passage. Verse 26, verse 48, and verse 56. The Lord has prospered my way. The servant was faithful, but it was God who had the victory in the story. There was a son who was quite young, and he said to his dad, he said, Dad, what do you think I should do with my life? The father looked at his son and said, well, son, I think you should go make your bed. The son was not very thrilled at this response, and so he said, no, dad, out of frustration, what should I do with my life in the future? father thought for a moment, he said, well, in the future, I think you should still probably make your bed. The father revealed his will to the son. And and when we think about what God's desire is for our life, what is his will for our life, it is clear in his word who we are to be and what we are to do. So we've thought about the secret will of God, but consider then the revealed will of God. How do we know what God wants us to do with our lives? It's clear in his word and the commands that he gives us. And so if you want to do God's will for your life today, it's very simple. Obey the commands of Christ. Look to his word and walk in obedience to his ways. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all of these things will be added unto you. Do you want to know what God's way is for your life and his plan is for your life? It is to walk in obedience to him. To seek first his kingdom and to pursue righteousness and then trust that he will have his way in you. And we come to understand this at the end of the story here in the final verses. Something we've seen over and over again in the book of Genesis. God will have his way in the lives of his people. We conclude the story in verse 62. It says, Now Isaac had returned from Ber Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes, and he saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that the Lord had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Isaac goes out in the evening to meditate, and he looks up, and what does he see? He doesn't see Rebekah coming. He sees his father's camels. And once again, we are reminded of God's faithfulness to Abraham and his offspring. And so Rebekah notices Isaac. She dismounts the camel. She prepares herself to be received. The servant tells Isaac everything that has happened. At this point, again, commentators think that Abraham is already dead. We, we notice here that he is now seen as the servant of Isaac. Isaac takes Rebekah. He brings her into his dead mother's tent. She becomes his wife, and it says that she, he loved her and then the final, final phrase there in verse 67, Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. We think about last week and we think about death and it's, it's coming and we are reminded here that God comforts us in the midst of sorrow and suffering because he is steadfast, he is faithful. 
And at the end of chapter 24, the story transitions from Abraham and Sarah. And the covenant promise is transitioned then to Isaac and Rebekah. Dear friend, as you look back over your life, over the, the years that you have lived, and you, you can give testimony to the faithfulness of God over and over again in your life, in good times and in bad, and when you look forward to the prospect of the future, rest in this today, God will have his way in your life. Be faithful. When you want to do his will, faithfully obey his commands that are revealed in his word. And when you have questions about what his plans are for your life, faithfully entrust your future to him. Seek his kingdom. Seek after righteousness and trust that he will have his way. Knowing this, those who rest in the steadfast love of God will be led by his providential hand. Let us pray.